We're resuming this real life relationship series, and we're going to go right back to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, the first 14 verses. We did not actually cover this passage when, when we uh, recently finished the Gospel of John, so we're going to read it now. I've entitled it, Who's Your Boss at Work? So, so uh, obviously, we're going to talk about our work relationship to our ultimate boss. So let's give our full attention to this. Happy to share this with you, starting at verse 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word, John's story so far in his gospel. Well, this is about two weeks after the first Easter Sunday. Jesus literally changed the face of history by rising from death. And he had promised his disciples, go northward to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there once again. So the disciples went to Galilee. Peter is a restless kind of guy, very impatient. He's got to be doing something. He can't just wait around and do nothing. So he says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I'm used to. And by my count, there were four other disciples. And they said, okay, we're going to go on a fishing trip with you too. And all night they fished. Again, this was their trade. They're, they're very good at it. All night they fished, but they caught no fish. No fish to eat, no fish to take home, no fish to sell. But Apostle John tells us just as day was breaking, they saw a distant figure on the shore, a misty, faint figure. And he called out to them after he said, children, do you have any fish? He said, cast the net on the right side and you'll find some. And they did, and they caught so many fish, they couldn't even bring it aboard. I find this passage eerie and peaceful, 
mysterious and surprising and wondrous. Two revelations, two revelations from this passage. First, it is surprising that one of the first things that the risen Lord Jesus Christ does, Apostle John said this is the third time he appeared, is that he comes and he enters everyday life. Two weeks ago, while we celebrated last week, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from death. And that's why I'm a Christian. I mean, singularly the bedrock reason. Not necessarily because it makes me feel happy or comforted, not because it's social or psychological, not because of immediate benefits or payoffs, although it has all of that. I have been convinced it's true. Jesus rose from death. So I want to love him and worship and follow him. He's going to make a difference in all of eternity, including this little life story that's being lived out. But after he rises from death, what does he do? What does he do? He doesn't build a choir. He doesn't build a church building. He doesn't perform more fantastic miracles. Here's what he does. He shows up on a beach after an all-nighter where they fail to catch fish. And he enters everyday life. You know, this Jesus doesn't just show up in cathedrals. He doesn't just show up at holy sites. He doesn't just show up when you have prayer meetings. He doesn't just show up when you open the Bible. He certainly does show up at worship services, but he's not restricted here. He shows up at workplaces. They were fishermen. They were fishing. And it was a beach. Oh, it's just like our beach, known for recreation and spas. Jesus shows up at workplaces and places of recreation and everything in between. After he rises again with his physical body, once again, what does he do? Not so many more fantastic miracles. He just appears again and again and again. And on this occasion, he gets involved with very scaly, slippery, smelly fish. He gets involved with a lot of fish. See, this is what Jesus is doing. The risen Jesus enters everyday life and he calls his followers, his disciples, to get to work. Post-Easter, post-resurrection, one of the greatest repetitive charges is that Christian people have to get to work. Now, our non-believing friends and family members here, and maybe someday they'll come, they work. For you to become a Christian does not mean you stop working and go off to a monastery or a 10-year retreat. Christians work. Non-believers work. But to become a Christian means that when you get back to work, you work for a better boss. Christians get back to work for a better reason. Christians get back to work under the hood, the engine of your heart. It may look like you're doing the same thing as your non-believing coworker, neighbor, and classmate, but in your heart, it couldn't be more different. Because here's what Jesus does. He enters everyday life and he calls his disciples to do what? Cast your nets. Cast your nets on the right side. And he tells his disciples, count the fish, 153 in total. 
Of course, I assure you, Jesus knew exactly how many fish they had caught. He doesn't have to guess. So why does he ask his disciples to count them? This is how gracious Jesus is. He wants his people to know that he counts and he values your work. Children, do you have any fish? He went from concern and compassion to a point where they caught so many, then he has them count it. Jesus is signaling to his followers, I so value your work. In fact, I'm very proud of you. Good job, you caught, you caught 153. This is seemingly unspiritual and plain and mundane, I know. But once again, this is one of the first things Jesus does after he rose from death. Get back to work, but get back to work for me. There's a medieval trend that was all around Europe and the West, and especially in the church. I'm going to carefully call it, it was a Catholic distortion. There's also a Protestant distortion, but today I only have time to talk about the Catholic distortion. And this is a, a view of life in which you separate everything into two categories, sacred versus secular, religious stuff versus like real life grimy stuff, elevated callings, elevated professions, elevated jobs versus the lowly ones. The Catholic distortion makes you think, and if you grew up this way, you can tell you fell under its spell. If you ever thought that to be a Christian or spiritual means you have to become full-time pastor, go overseas and be a missionary, or be involved with some kind of like clergy or something directly related to a church, if you ever heard that or believed it or thought that that was the case, you've come under the Catholic distortion. And what the Catholic distortion tells us is that there are certain things that are just directly spiritual that are elevated and sacred. It's more important. But this would not be the case. Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years. Do you think that Jesus wasted 30 years before he started his public ministry of three years, around the age of 30? Do you think the first 30 years was just kind of a, a throwaway time that it had no meaning or significance, especially to his father, God in heaven, several of his disciples right here went back to fishing. Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian, missionary, Christian follower who wrote several books in the New Testament, most of the time he made tents. Most of the time before he preached sermons, he provided an income and he contributed to society by making tents. So this is why Martin Luther, a German theologian, a great reformer, he wrote this piece called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church in 1520. I'm just going to read what he observed. The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ in one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandments is to love God with everything you got and then to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, 
no matter what you do, if you are loving your neighbor, if you are serving the common good, if you're contributing back to the world to make it a, relatively for now, a peaceful, orderly, just place through construction, technology, computer science, the arts, fashion, justice, mercy, management, and raising little children, future disciples for Christ. No matter what you do, Martin Luther observed, it's not about what you do. God doesn't measure people your worth based on what you do. Here's what he goes on and says. Housework is often more acceptable to God than all the fastings and other works of a monk or priest because the monk or priest lacks faith. Here's what Luther observed from the scriptures. My friends, it's not about what you do, as long as it's legal and legitimate, but it's not about what you do, it's who do you do it for? And do you know what the greatest product you can offer? I'm not talking about that design. I'm not talking about that car model. I'm not talking about that computer. I'm not talking about the efficient way you came up to organize and, and account for a whole company. Do you know what the greatest product you can deliver, according to God, is faith? That's your greatest product. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's your worth or how much it pleases God is not based upon what you do. It's based upon who you do it for. And it's all given by faith. Which, by the way, is a supernatural gift. It doesn't naturally come from us anyways. It's a gift of God. But Jesus, just here, you know, he's the one that provided 153 fish. And then he has them count it. He has them value it. He signals he's proud of them. But he's the one that let let them catch that many anyway. Same thing. In all of our work, my friend, it's not so much what you do. It's who you do it for by faith. All of it has been given by gift. And if you've been called by the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one that gives you your worth. Your worth is not in what you do. It's who you do it for. You might have heard of this other historical figure by the name of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, and thank God, you know the author of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton, in real life, met William Wilberforce and told him to stay in politics. See, William Wilberforce was a gifted, brilliant mind, and he got converted to the Christian faith. John Newton met him because William was thinking, oh, well, I should become a pastor or full-time missionary. Here's what John Newton told him, quote, it is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of a nation. And thank God, after much wrestling and prayer and thought, Wilberforce stayed a politician. And he went on to lead the abolition of the slave trade in Parliament, which many historians have called the greatest moral achievement in British history. Later in 1788, William Wilberforce said this about himself, 
My walk is a public one. My business is in the world. And I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. William Wilberforce knew as much as I do as a pastor that providence, God, has assigned him to do that job. And to the degree that he does it for him by faith, it is as pleasing. If not, I would not be surprised in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus showers down infinite exponential rewards upon my wife where she worked as a full-time mom while I was out doing directly spiritual things. And I'm going to see Jesus just give her this enormous mansion. I'm a little side house in the backyard. Because again, it's not about what you do. It's who you do it for. So who do you do it for? The first revelation we find from this passage is Jesus on the shore enters everyday life and he calls his disciples to get to work. Here's a second. This is it. Just a second revelation. The Lord Jesus enters every day to serve us in every way. Jesus enters every day to serve as the Lord in every way. I don't know what you know about Jesus or what you don't know about Jesus. But he is not a mechanical, one-dimensional character. Please, he's not. Do you find in this passage, here's what he does. He asks his disciples about that all-nighter, that frustrating work. He's the guy who does come along and says, how was your week? How has your work life been? Has it been fruitless? Has it been so frustrating? Not only does he ask, he cares. And after you pulled an all-nighter, he's the one that says, I'm sure you're hungry. You need some meat. You need some bread. Let me cook it. Let me hand prepare it for you and feed you. Not spiritually speaking here, physically. Do you notice in the beginning how he called them friends, friends, uh, friends, uh, do you have any fish? Sometimes, a lot of times, a lot of you in the work grind, what you need is not more sermons or pressures or raise expectations. You know, what you really need to do is just, you need someone to relax with, you need good food and drink, you need a friend that you can pour your heart to. You need to enliven your soul once again. And did you know Jesus does all that? Do you know Jesus does exactly that with his disciples here? Jesus came into our every day to serve as Lord in every way, in your times off. And if you want Jesus to be Lord at all, he must be the Lord of all. The Lord of fishing, the Lord of working, the Lord of accounting, the Lord of playing, the Lord of sleeping, the Lord of eating and drinking, the Lord over all creation, all of life. That is the only role Jesus will play. That is the only way Jesus will fit into our lives. Not as a part-time consultant or advisor or just a therapist or a friend at times, but as a full-time Lord, as a full-time Lord. 
One of my favorite passages, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus says, is there anybody really tired? Is there anybody weary and beaten down? Are you just sick and tired of your work life? That's what Jesus invites. Then he goes on to say, I want you to take upon my yoke. A yoke is a device of mastery. A yoke is a tool for lordship. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to find rest for your soul, and I'm talking about a soul-nourishing, soul-satisfying rest. I am not talking about the rest where you go on spring break for about five days to Hawaii and you come back just as exhausted as before. Jesus offers a rest that is actually deep and nourishing and fulfilling. Do you know how you get that rest? If you're so weary and beaten down and frustrated and tired, do you know how you get the rest that Jesus promises? Here's what he says. You got to take my yoke. Do you know what the yoke is? You need a full-time boss. You need a full-time Lord. He must be the Lord of all. And when he is the Lord of all, I assure you, there is no other boss in the world that will give you better and more comprehensive rest. Jesus doesn't just forgive your sins. He becomes your friend. Jesus doesn't just say, well, when you get to heaven, it's going to be like this. No, he says, on earth as it is in heaven. He gives you bread and drink. He lets you eat. He lets you relax in his presence. Jesus enters our every day to become the Lord in every way. You know, Elijah one time, the great prophet, after he had performed miracles by the power of God, he actually was so depressed at one point, he said, I just want to die. Oh, that's just human beings. This is how fragile we are. That's how emotional we get. That's just how hyped up and how downtrodden we can get. Overnight. And do you know what God did for him? What is the cure for someone who is that despondent, depressed? God provided him. Not on this occasion. Please go read more scripture. Please go have a prayer retreat. You know what he said? He gave him a company of angels. He needed company, and he provided him food to eat. So this morning, dear friends, as Jesus enters every day, to call us to get back to work, and he enters every day to be Lord in every way, how can you tell if Jesus is really your boss? How can you tell who's your real boss at work? I'm going to give us just three signs, real quick. If you flip over to the book of Colossians chapter 3, I picked Colossians because we just finished the book of Ephesians, and it's almost the same, but I just wanted to pick a new book. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 Here's what Apostle Paul charges. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Here's the first manifestation that you're really working for the Lord Jesus Christ at work. You work heartily. You work hard. You work sincerely. You do your job well. You want to do it well. Listen, the worth of your boss, the worth of who you're really working for is reflected in the quality of your work. 
This is why Apostle Paul says, well, if you're really working for the Lord Jesus, not for men, how can we not work heartily? About two years ago, I frequently go to San Francisco. We've got a Christ Central sister church there. Two years ago, I cannot forget it. Jet blue from SFO to Long Beach. Thank you, God, for Long Beach Airport. One of my favorite airports. Anyhow, I got on this flight, and the turbulence was violent. It was unusual. The baggage bins overhead opened. Some people started screaming. To be honest, I went to cry. I felt so sick. I wanted to throw up. I almost forced myself to throw up because I was just cold sweat. I was that nauseous. Let's suppose that our pilot for that flight happened to be a Christian. Mr. or Mrs. Christian pilot. Mr. or Mrs. Christian jet blue pilot. What do I want that pilot to do for me? What difference would it make if he or she was a Christian? Do I want the pilot to get on the intercom? And start saying, you know, let's all close our eyes and pray here. Do I want the pilot to read me scripture passages of how there's life after death? There's the hope after death. Do I want him to start confessing to me? You know, during a lot of our training, especially on these emergency situations, I was too busy doing my Bible reading. No. Here's what I want most for my Christian pilot. Please land the plane. Please get off the intercom. Pay attention to what you're doing and do your job well. Please let us live. Because if your true boss is the Lord Jesus Christ, not for men, work heartily. Do it well. Here's a second sign that gives away who your real boss is. You work with a better bottom line. You work with a better bottom line. Colossians chapter 3, we just read verse 23. Let's read the next verse, 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You work with a better bottom line. Can I ask you, my friend, what is the bottom line according to our world? We live and breathe and sleep this. What is it? Numbers, income, sales, profit, your product. Did you get published? Were you awarded? Are you going to make our company look better? Yada, yada, yada. All the recognition and approval and applause and rewards in this little immediate temporal sphere. Here's what Apostle Paul says. Don't work for that. Work for an eternal inheritance, a recognition and an applause that comes from an ultimate boss. And those rewards and riches cannot fade. Pay attention, my friends. This is what makes Christian workers not just work harder, it makes them more faithful, not flaky. Christian workers can somehow persevere and endure in awful conditions at work because if your ultimate boss is not your immediate physical boss, you can still be faithful. How can you tell who's your real boss at work? Work 
heartily. Do your job well. Second, work with the better bottom line. Third, last one, just last one. You're going to become a much better team player. You're going to become a better, better team player. You might become the best team player. A Christian worker ought to be one of the ones you would enjoy the most to work with. Because my tendency so often is that I'm working for myself. One of my greatest battles is when he, Paul, Paul, Paul says, Harold, work for the Lord Jesus Christ, not for men. Work for the Lord Jesus Christ, not for men. Do you know who the greatest man that gets in the way of me working for Jesus? It's not others, it's me, it's myself. And I have this mechanism of my own voice or opinion or judgment of something that I did. And it is sky high, it's very critical. Usually, I don't meet up to my own standard of judgment of how I thought I did. Paul comes around and says, Harold, even that, even that, how prideful and obsessive are you? That you are judging yourself? No, the only judgment and approval that would matter is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, as long as I'm not serving the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm serving myself or any other man or woman or child, when I succeed, if and when I happen to do pretty well, I'm going to get very inflated. I'm going to get pretty pompous and become very arrogant. That's just human tendency. And then when you don't do well, you're going to be crushed and deflated. My friend, if you work for your own name, if you're working for yourself, you're going to be terribly insecure. You're going to be so fragile all the time. Why? Because if you succeed in 2018, by the way, no matter how much you succeed in 2018, if you are working for yourself, you better do it in 2019 and 2029 too. So it'll inflate your head, or if you fail, it'll crush your heart. But if you work for the sake of Christ, if you crucify who you really work for, and you really work for the Lord, Here's two things you're going to be able to do. It's pretty supernatural. You know that woman or guy right in your department who's actually brighter and faster and they're just better than you? You're actually going to be able to celebrate their success without envy. You're not going to be dying inside when someone gets promoted or outperforms you. Because you're working for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you happen to be on top, if you happen to be better than the pack and you just got promoted, Christian workers will be the most compassionate. They'll serve without superiority. Here's what I'm talking about. If you become a better team player, this is what I'm asking you. Less of Kobe Bryant, more Christian. Ha ha. Less competitive, more compassionate. Less about you, more about the team. Your worth, oh, your worth. If you have paid any attention so far to the word of God, do you know how this dispels and rewires three of the greatest lies we all believe in? If you paid any attention just on the three signs 
of who you really work for at work, this can rewire all the lies that we grew up believing. Because here are the lies. Your worth is not in what you do. Your worth is not how much you get paid or how much you get in return at work. And your worth is not in comparison to anybody else. My friend, your worth, my worth, is entirely in the one you work for by faith. Christ Jesus. Oh, so for the first time when Jesus actually performed this miracle of supplying fish in Luke chapter 5, he told his disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he did it to indicate that he has a greater work in mind. This is the work of God in all of our work. It is the main mission of the Spirit of God in the midst of many things even the church can do. Because it is a fact in heaven we will all still work. Oh, please don't groan and complain when you hear that. But it's going to be without any frustration, any regret, any toil, any disappointment. There's going to be no fatigue. It's going to be with perfect fulfillment and perfect joy. In heaven, we will still work. And in heaven, we're still going to worship. We're going to worship God without a lack of fervency or faith. But I'll tell you one thing we can't do in heaven. You can't go fishing. You can't go fishing. Your friend, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your coworker, that has an expiration date on it. One more for the gospel is why we exist. Why we're still left here. Because when Jesus worked, why did he come all the way out of heaven into earth to do work? Here was his work. He worked heartily. He worked with everything he got. And he endured the most awful conditions by getting crucified to a cross in order to say, I endured, I it is finished. He completed his job. He did his job well done. And you want to talk about the best sacrificial selfless team player? The reason why Jesus is going to be eternally adored and worshipped and praised is because he lived a life that was not about himself. And when he comes to his people and all of his followers, here's all he asks. Here's what he asks. As you work for the Lord Jesus, and as you worship for the Lord Jesus, do it in such a way that I get to do my work. And this part is his work. He's going to make you fishers of men. He's going to attract people to wonder why you work the way you work. He knows where all the fish are. He knows how to catch them without breaking any nets. And he's not going to lose anyone who's already on the boat. He's the master fisherman. Listen, all night the disciples worked, didn't catch one stinking fish. One word from Jesus, they caught too much. Without Jesus, fruitless labors. With Jesus, abundant fruit of all of our labors. We'll close with this question. Well, if Jesus is the master, consummate fisherman, why does he ask any of us to fish? And you're absolutely right to ask the question. If Jesus could fish all by himself, 
Why does he ask for, for, for me to work with him at all? Well, I can't get over it. I can't find any other better answer. In fact, I can't even find any other answer in all the scriptures. The reason why Jesus asked me to work and fish is because <laughs> it is his pleasure to give me a taste of his infinite pleasure of working with him. We as human beings are made in the image of God to work. And if you get to taste that you're working for God, by God, for the glory of God, it is who you work for because he called you and you do it by faith, there is a fulfillment there that no vacation can afford. I love breaks. I love vacations. I love fine food. I love beaches. Oh, I love them. I love them. But I couldn't live the rest of my life that way. Never. Always towards the end, there's an itch in my heart that I got to get back to work. And that work has been summoned and assigned to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, I can do it by his spirit for his glory. My friend, this is for you this morning. Your spiritual Christian life has everything to do with Monday morning stuck in traffic, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday all-nighters, and you just barely make it back home by Friday night, and you crash, and you just got to catch up on sleep on Saturday. God calls his people to work for a better boss. And he'll use anybody and everybody. Nathaniel was the gullible type, superstitious type. Thomas was the critical scientific type. Nathaniel's and Thomas's avoid each other. But on this boat, Jesus calls them together to reach the world. Apostle John is the thoughtful theologian. He is a very, very careful type. Peter is the impetuous, action-oriented, impetuous, emotional type. John doesn't like Peter types because they're too quick. They seem to not be thoughtful, not controlled and tempered. Peter doesn't like John types because they're slow and they plan and they have so many plans and plans and meetings and meetings. They're very Presbyterian. But this is all the kinds of people Jesus brings and builds together on his boat. He's building a church on that boat. And when Jesus calls all of us together to get to work, when Jesus calls all of his people to work together to get back to work, it'll change the world. Straight from the lips of Jesus, the risen Jesus, cast your nets. That's right. Get back to work. And every day, every day, hey, my line of calling to be a pastor, I have to do this every day. It's no different from you. Believe me when I say this. I have to do this every day. Every day, I have to repent and refocus my attention. Not in what I do, how much I get out of it, or in any comparison to anyone else, but who I get to work for. And if you do that, not only do you know that's what the risen Lord Jesus wants you to do, along the way, He'll serve and give you breakfast anytime you need it. No work done for the sake of Christ by faith and love will be wasted. He'll take it and he can change the world. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word.
And we ask, oh God, that not only it would instruct us, it would change us. God, change us in deep, deep, life-giving ways. I pray for all of my dear friends and sisters here, in between work, studying, or at work, all of it, oh Lord, may we be able to hear your voice and respond to your call by faith and do it unto you as service to you, to this world, and as a witness of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.